If you guys have your Bibles with you, we're not going to go to Acts this morning. We're going to go to Philippians chapter 2, the verse, in fact, that Aaron read while we were worshiping. And pretty much all the songs we sang this morning pointed to Philippians chapter 2. In fact, for the next several weeks, we're going to take a break from our exposition of Acts and focus on the birth of Christ as we are moving toward um, moving toward Christmas. As Christmas approaches, uh, I think it's fitting for us to remind ourselves of what we're celebrating. Uh, it's fitting to remember with awe and wonder what, what our God has done for us. And uh, I hope today that when you leave here, uh, we will be even more in awe and wonder of what our God has done for us in the gospel. I, I've often said, you probably heard it if you've been here for any, any length of time at all, I've often said from this pulpit, actually, that the gospel of our salvation, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is, is not just the baby steps of Christianity. It is the source. It is the center of our very lives as believers as we walk in this world. The gospel is our power for living. It is, it is the hub around which everything else in our Christian lives turn. Um, and that gospel, that that precious gospel of Jesus, the salvation of our souls, His death, burial, resurrection, and the message of that gospel that go, goes forth, that gospel began in eternity past as the Father purposed to send the Son into His own creation to redeem sinners. Um, I, I'm often asked um, at various times, all the time actually, you know, what's your favorite Bible verse or your favorite section of Scripture well, today we're going to get to look at it. It's this Philippians chapter 2, uh, verses 5 through 11. It's, um, it's often called the Carmen Christi. You may have heard it that, said that way. It's the hymn to Christ. Uh, and it is one of the most profound and, and beautiful explanations of the gospel, in my opinion. Uh, I mean, it's all Scripture. It's all God-breathed. But this, whole, this, this passage holds... Um, it just very dear and precious meaning for me uh, as it's been used in my life. And I think it's well worth our time to study it as part of our Christmas remembrance. Now, Paul is writing from prison. It's writing during the last seven chapters of Acts, so it kind of goes with where we are in Acts. But he's writing from prison, and of course he's writing to the church at Philippi. Um, and in chapter 2 of Philippians... Paul is exhorting the church to be united together. He's exhorting them to be in one mind together. And he's exhorting them to do so, to be in one mind by each member of the body humbling themselves and thinking of others as more significant than themselves. He says in verses 1 through 4, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy, this is how, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And then he tells them how to accomplish this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. 
This is the mind that must pervade believers in the church of Jesus Christ. And to show them the example of this humility, of thinking others more significant than yourselves, of humbling themselves, of not doing anything uh, through selfish ambition, to show them the example of that, Paul goes on in verse 5 to begin showing them Jesus himself, how he humbled himself. And that'll be our focus today. Verse 5 through 11 says, Let each of you not look uh, on your own interests, but also the interests of others. That was where we ended just a second ago. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, then begins to explain how this mind is in Christ. Who, Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because he emptied himself, because he humbled himself, therefore God, meaning God the Father, has highly exalted him. And bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. This text is so rich and so full, and we are going to examine it with an eye toward the birth of Christ and the work of the gospel. But before we do, make sure that you understand application that Paul intends here. Because this is what Jesus Christ has done. We, as the church, are to have the mind of Christ. Believers are to be like Christ in humbling themselves, counting others more significant than themselves, because this is what Jesus did. So what we're going to focus on is the latter part, what Jesus actually did, and understand that the application is that is what we are called to do, humble ourselves. This hymn, this uh, hymn to Christ, it doesn't begin at the birth of Christ in Bethlehem. It begins way before that when the eternal Son emptied Himself. It says, have this mind among yourselves. He's telling them to w walk in humility. He says, this mind is yours in Christ Jesus, and then describes it. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. First thing you need to understand, we all need to understand as we talk about Christmas and we celebrate, celebrate Christmas is that Jesus, the eternal God, the eternal Son, did not come into existence when He was born in Bethlehem. He is God from all eternity. The Bible shows us that there is only one God. But within the one being that is God, there are three equal and eternal persons. Now, that's a hard thing to comprehend because there is nothing like it in creation. 
You can't point to anything and say it's like that. When you start pointing at like the egg or time or water or, you know, that kind of stuff, when you start doing that, it always breaks down and it doesn't give the picture. There's nothing like it in creation. So let me try quickly to explain the difference between being and person. Okay? You ready? Say, I'm ready. All right, ready or not. This stool has being. You see it? It's actually a pretty heavy being. If I threw it across the room and it hit somebody, you would know firsthand just how much being this stool has. It exists. It's real. It has being. But there are no persons in this stool. It doesn't have personhood. It's not alive. You can yell at it. You can talk lovingly to it. I mean, we sit on it, so it doesn't care. It doesn't care. You'll get no response from it whatsoever. It doesn't have personhood. It has being, but no person. You, on the other hand, we as human beings, you're real. There you are. Okay. You have being as well. And in the one being that makes you a human being, there is one person. There exists one person in your being. That's the essence of who you are. The, your personhood is the thing that doctors can't find with a scalpel or an MRI or a brain scan. Or, uh, you, you can't find that. It, that's who you are. It's the essence of who you are. If there is more than one person in your being, please come talk to me. We need to get you some help. <laughs> but in the one being that is God, there are three equal and eternal persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That means before there was anything created, before time, before space, before matter was created, when there were no trees, no air, no grass, no nothing, when there was nothing in existence except God, God has always been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The three persons of the triune God existed in love relationship with one another from eternity past. That's why the Bible says God is love. Even before there was a creation, God loved. God is love. So Jesus didn't come into existence when he was born in Bethlehem. He's always existed as God. He is the eternal Son of God. And Paul picks up this thought as he's showing humility in uh, verse 5 of chapter 2 in Philippians. And he says... Though Jesus was in the form of God, when it says form of God, it doesn't mean just the outward appearance. If you have a New International Version, it translates it being in the very nature of God. It's not just His appearance. He existed as God. So Jesus as God existed from all eternity, the Son of God. His divine nature and His glory was not something that He had to grasp. For or hold tightly onto as if he couldn't let it go because he would be somehow lesser. But in the ultimate act of love, the eternal Son of God emptied himself. But, but make sure that you don't stop reading there because we immediately ask the question what does it mean that he emptied himself? Did, it, did he stop being God? Did, did, did emptying himself, did he empty himself of, of godhood or divinity or glory or lordship? What did he lose when it says he emptied himself? 
He didn't lose anything. The text tells us how he emptied himself. You see it? Verse 7. He emptied himself not by giving something away, but by adding something to himself. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. By taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men, he did not forfeit his godhood or his divine nature. He veiled it in the nature of a human being. He took upon his divine nature, the nature of a man, and entered into his own creation. That's what we celebrate when we celebrate Christmas. The eternal God, Yahweh of the Old Testament, the one and only Lord, took on the nature of man to be born as a baby in Bethlehem to ultimately save mankind. And make sure that you see this, because we often miss it. Jesus, the eternal Son, in verse 7, emptied Himself. You see it? He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. The Son of God himself chose to be born and laid in the manger on that first Christmas day. The Father sent him. He was born of the Spirit. But Jesus emptied himself and took on the nature of a human being. So when you look at that little baby figurine in your nativity scene this year, Understand that that baby, the eternal Son, God of very God, creator and sustainer of the whole universe, of all of creation, He chose to be there. He emptied Himself by taking on Himself the nature of a man. But that isn't the end of the Christmas story. He emptied Himself and then the eternal Son went further and humbled Himself. It says, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now think about this for a moment. The great God of all creation, of all the universe, the omnipotent and omniscient Lord of all becomes a man, but he chose not to be born as an earthly king. He came in obscurity, humbling himself as a servant. In layman's terms, a nobody. The only royal announcement of his birth was a star in the sky that hardly anyone noticed and an angelic chorus given to no-name shepherds out in the field somewhere. And before we get to the fact that he was obedient to death, let's remember that he also lived his life in perfect obedience. His entire earthly life was lived in perfect obedience to the law of God, to the Father. From the second he was born to the moment that he took his last breath on earth. And it was necessary for him to do so. You see, to be right with God requires living Perfectly, according to the law of God. Good won't do it. Doing better won't do it. It requires perfection. Absolute. From the day that you're born to the day that you die. Absolute perfection. God is perfect in His justice and He's perfect in His righteousness. And perfection without exception in every case, no matter what the circumstances, is what is required to be right before God. 
Many people just don't understand that. People have this very strange view about justice and judgment when it comes to God. Many think that, you know, as long as I'm, I'm, I'm doing better and I'm trying my best and I, I do a lot of good things that kind of offset the bad things. Uh, so, you know, somehow that, that's going to balance the scale and God's going to accept, accept me. That is so strange as a concept of justice. I mean, try that in any courtroom in the world. If you're guilty, try that before the judge. Judge, I am really sorry that I killed that guy. I promise I won't do anything like that again. And, and besides... I know I messed up right here, but I've done a lot of good things too. I'm a really a good person. So I think that kind of balances out the fact that I killed that guy. You think that's going to work? No. I'll answer for you. That's the opposite of justice. Justice requires punishment for breaking the law. And if you say, well, Jason, you used a really extreme example. Now we're talking about murder. I haven't done anything like that bad or whatever. That proves the point that we don't understand what perfect justice is. It's perfect. That means every single breach, even the ones we think are just not that bad, must receive justice or it's not perfect. And if it's not perfect, it's not God. Have you ever used God's name in vain in a flippant way? The Bible says, I will not hold him guiltless who uses my name in vain. Have you ever lied in your whole entire life? The Bible says, every liar will have his part in the lake of fire. Have you ever lusted in your mind? Jesus said, those that look at others with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. Perfect justice means that every single breach of God's law in word, in thought, and in deed deserves condemnation and wrath. And if God is perfect and God is God and he is just, it must come to pass or God would not be God. And doing better won't help. That's not how justice works. You must pay for what you've already done. But Jesus Christ, God and man, is the only one who has ever lived, never once breaking a command of God. And that means when he humbled himself here in verse 8, by becoming obedient to the point of death, it wasn't because he himself owed a death. The wages of sin is death. But he never sinned. So when he humbled himself, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. He was paying the wage that others owe. And he was paying it willingly. Jesus had to die in the sense that it was the reason that he came. It was ordained before the foundation of the world. But there's also a sense in which he did not have to die. He didn't owe a death. He didn't owe anything. He had no sin. He didn't owe the wages of sin. But again, Jesus chose to lay down his life, to make himself obedient to death, to take the place of those who were sinners. So that the just and holy and righteous God could justify sinners and still be a holy and righteous and perfect God. So, so when we celebrate the coming of Christ, celebrate the coming of the Savior on Christmas, it's not just, it's not just the miracle of the incarnation, the Word made flesh. It's also with an eye to, to what is coming pointed to. 
It's a celebration of the cross that He chose to take on human flesh and come and be born. And then He chose to make Himself obedient to death. He didn't owe in my place. The punishment that you and I deserve, He took it upon Himself. It's the Father pouring out all of His divine wrath and condemnation for sin upon the only sinless and perfect one man, if you will, that ever existed who chose to become a sacrificial substitute for those who are unable to be accepted by God. Jesus, the eternal Son, emptied Himself by becoming a man. And as a man, He humbled Himself further, becoming obedient to a death that He did not deserve for you. But even that, even that is not the end of the Christmas story. The eternal Son of God is now, today, as we speak this morning, forever exalted. Now, this text says, therefore, make sure you don't miss that. Because He emptied Himself, became a man, because He humbled Himself, being obedient to death, therefore, because of these things, Therefore, God, meaning the Father, has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, at first glance, this can be kind of confusing. I mean, you just told us that Jesus has always been Lord and God. And He's always been worthy of all praise and honor. He is God, a very God from eternity past. So if Jesus existed in the form of God for all eternity, wasn't He exalted already before Bethlehem? What does it mean that because He emptied Himself and because He humbled Himself, therefore... The God the Father exalted him and gave him this name above every name. Didn't he already have the name above every name? Short answer to that question is yes, of course he did. Follow me right here. This is saying that the eternal Son of God, God of all creation, took upon himself the nature of man. He came into his creation as both God and man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death as God and man. And the Father exalted him to the highest glory as God and man. That's a whole lot bigger than you just reacted. The eternal Son has always borne the divine name, the name above every other name. He is Yahweh from, from eternity past, but now the Father has exalted Him to the throne of glory as not only God, a very God, but also as a man, as a human being. Today and for the rest of all eternity, Jesus will always be God and man. Do you see the ramifications of that? I once had a, a 
a heated debate, it wasn't like a formal debate, just a conversation, with a person who claimed that, that Jesus didn't really give up anything when he died on the cross. This person claimed to be a believer and said that Jesus wasn't really giving up anything. They claimed that because Jesus already knew that he was coming to die, which is true, and he already knew that he was going to rise from the dead, which is also true, then it must not have been much of a sacrifice because he knew, he knew that after his death he would rise and ascend into heaven and everything would just go back to the way it was. But that's the whole point. Everything didn't go back to the way it was. The Son of God took on the nature of a man and will now and forever, for all eternity, exist as both God and man. You don't think that's a sacrifice? You don't think that's an emptying? You don't think that's a humbling of himself? When Jesus took upon himself man's nature to be born in Bethlehem, he would forevermore bear that nature. So after Jesus rose from the dead, on the day that he ascended into heaven as both God and man, something happened that had never happened before in all of eternity. As the gates of God's throne room opened up, a man, a human being, walked through the corridor of eternity and sat down in righteousness at the right hand of the Father. And today, a real human being sits enthroned in glory, exalted by the just and holy righteous God, and He is interceding for His people. Oh, come let us adore Him indeed. The eternal Son, the second person of the Trinity who existed in love relationship with the Father and the Spirit from all eternity. He left the splendor of glory. He left His position in glory. Not ceasing to be God, but left His position by taking on the nature of a man. He came into His own creation, becoming human, he did what no sinful human could ever do. He kept the law of God. And then he gave his perfect human life, paying the debt for humans that they owed for sin and ascended back to the glory that he had before creation now as both God and man. And in doing so, he brings with him Every sinner who is united to Jesus Christ in salvation. So now the scriptures can say that we ourselves in Christ are seated in heavenly places. Do you understand the love relationship that existed before creation? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existed before all creation. And creation itself was an overflow of God's love, not because he needed somebody to love him. It was an overflow of God's love to bring creation into that love relationship, that love of God. But we sinned, and we could not come into a holy God's adoptive relationship any longer. So the Son of God took on the nature of a man died for sin, gave himself, ascended as God and man, 
And He has brought all those who are united with Him, who believe in His name, who trust in Him and have been born again, back into that relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit where we might be not the Son of God, but the adopted sons and daughters of God, co-heirs, it says, with Christ. And there is coming a day when all of creation, every person, everything, either in reverent obedience to God or because they have been subjugated by the Lord of glory, will bow the knee to the King of all the earth who is forever God and man. In verse 10, quickly, where he says, The name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Paul is actually quoting a passage from Isaiah 45. It's good for you to write that in your Bible. next. So when the Jehovah's Witnesses come and tell you Jesus is not God, say, wait a minute, God says in Isaiah 45, every knee's going to bow to me, and Paul applies it to Jesus. In this passage, in Isaiah 45, it says this, God is speaking. He says, turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth, look, for I am God, look at it, there is no other. There is no other God. By myself, he says, I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. And here it is. To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. You see what he's doing there? You see how it's accomplished? God the Father has given the name above all names to God and man, Jesus Christ. The name above every name is now the name of a man, Jesus Christ, who is God and man. Oh, Christmas is a whole lot bigger than we think it is. The story of the birth of the Savior is a monumental, unimaginable, unfathomable miracle that ripples through all eternity. It is the coming of our salvation. It is the demonstration of the great love of our Savior, of our God who has saved us by emptying Himself, by giving His perfect life in my place. And it's an invitation into God's presence where the door has now swung wide open for wretched sinners to come and be adopted by the God of the universe. And just as powerful and as wonderful a miracle happens every single day now when this God of very God ruler of all the universe calls to the hearts of sinners and says, come to me. And that miracle happens afresh in your heart when you trust in Christ and you are born again and you are adopted into the family of God, the kingdom of God, and you are taken from an enemy of God and brought into the very love relationship shared by the Trinity from all eternity and you will remain there for all eternity. 
What a miracle. We have been called to be united with Jesus Christ so that His righteousness is on our account, so that His death pays for my sin, so that our name is recorded in His book, the Lamb's book of life. And when you're united with Christ, the Father sees you as He sees His own Son adopted into the kingdom of God, co-heir with Christ. If you, as a born-again believer, if you've been born again today, if you die while I'm speaking, your heart stops beating and you drop to the carpet and the next thing you see when you open your eyes is the judgment bar of God, you're probably going to be like all of us will be uh, saying, God, I'm sorry I did this. I'm sorry I didn't do that. I failed here. I didn't do. And God will say, what are you talking about? All I see is the blood of my son covering your life. When Jesus ascended back to heaven as God and man, there was no criticism. There was no, well, now, Jesus, you really did. You did good, but right here, no, sir. There was rejoicing. There was rejoicing as the Son was returning to His seat in glory. And that same rejoicing, that same view of you, sinner, is what God sees you as in Jesus Christ because you're not your own anymore. You are in Jesus Christ, united with Him. The only way that you can be united with Jesus Christ and accepted perfectly at the throne, at the judgment bar of God is by receiving Jesus through faith. Trusting Him and entrusting yourself to Him. There is no salvation for you without receiving, listen to it, Him. It's not a set of facts to receive it's not a theological puzzle to unravel and work out. Salvation is a person. The Word Himself became flesh and dwelt among us. And in that same chapter, John chapter 1, verse 12, it says, All those who received, look at it, Him. How do I receive Him? Who believed in His name. Those who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave them the right, the authority to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. Do you see how wondrous Christmas is? Don't let another Christmas go by without entrusting your soul to Jesus Christ. Without being adopted into the family of God. Without being born again. And don't let another Christmas go by without us celebrating and rejoicing and letting our hearts be lifted to the highest heaven in glory and praise of God. For He has given us everything. And He deserves all praise and honor. Let's pray. Father, we do love You. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the Gospel. We thank You for the celebration of the birth of our Savior. Jesus, we, we thank You for emptying Yourself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the, in the likeness of men. 
Jesus, we thank you for humbling yourself, becoming obedient to a death that you did not deserve so that I might have a life that I don't deserve for eternity. Lord, we glory in who you are. We glory in the miracle that you have done that surpasses all other things. The joy and the purpose and God, it's not even expressible in words how much praise and glory and honor that we owe you. Give us a sense as we talk to family and friends and all the people that will be around this Christmas. Give us a sense of that glory to tell others who you are and what you've done. And God, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, maybe they've been trying hard to be religious or trying to do good or be good or be better or fix things in their life so that they would be accepted by you. God, I pray that you would show them what you've done that you would show them the futility of that and that you would call by their name and say, come to me. Spirit, we pray that you would do a work in our hearts today and that you would do a work in the hearts of those who need to trust in you and be born again. For there is only one way. And Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name, we pray all these things. Amen. As always, I'm going to stand right down here at the front. If you want to come, if you want to pray, if you want to come and trust in Christ or whatever it is that you may have, you come. Let's stand.